Well, this morning we're looking at the Beatitudes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is probably the most famous portion from the most famous sermon ever preached. Uh, And and although we'll only get a 30,000-foot view this morning, uh, I hope we'll be challenged and encouraged and see the beauty of Jesus and what it is to follow him a bit more clearly. Because we can get a bit fuzzy and confused about that, can't we? Especially in, in the pluralistic and secularized world that we live in, what does it mean to live a Christian life? And to what extent are Christians really different from other people? How can we live like a city on a hill that can't be hidden? I think Jesus makes it abundantly clear here. So there's a lot to get at. Let's jump in. Verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them. So right off the bat, we see that Jesus sits to teach. And to put it casually, this is so Jesus, right? All throughout Matthew's gospel, we see Jesus sitting. He sits in a boat to tell parables. He sits on a mountain to heal the lame, the deaf, and the blind. He sits to deliver the prophecy of judgment And he promises that he will come again and sit on his throne to judge. Why? Because kings sit to rule. And here in Matthew 5, Jesus sits on a mountain to teach. Mountains in the Bible are where heaven and earth meet. And so here at the beginning of his ministry, we see Jesus enthroned on a high place, on the mountain, a place near heaven to bring the words of the kingdom of heaven to the people on earth. These are the first things Jesus emphasizes as he proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. And this kingdom, the the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God as it's referred to is, is central to what we see and hear from Jesus. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. So quite simply, the message of the Sermon on the Mount is, this is what it means. This is what it looks like to repent and belong to the kingdom of heaven. It's a description of the lifestyle of those who belong to that kingdom. And what is the kingdom of God? Well, in one sentence, it is the rule and reign of God. The full expression of his gracious, sovereign will. So then to belong to the kingdom of God is to belong to the people among whom the reign of God has already begun. The kingdom of God is near. It it has come because Jesus is king in God's kingdom. And where he reigns, there the kingdom of heaven is already present. So then in the presence of the king himself, a a, a new lifestyle altogether is called for. And living out the Sermon on the Mount means bowing to the authority of Jesus. We come to him, we take his yoke, we learn from him. We can't live in his kingdom without his being king and Lord. One theologian made this sobering observation. If you are not seeking 
to live out the Sermon on the Mount, you lack the fundamental evidence that Jesus Christ is your Savior. Because the sermon is simply a description of the life of salvation. Now, I'm, I'm well aware that that may cause some squirming. Um, because unfortunately, one common approach to this teaching is to look at it as a message given to stir up the greatest amount of guilt in, in the fewest possible chapters. Right? Here's the standard. Look how miserably you failed. Get it together and do better. And that's just not what's happening here. It's true that we can't avoid some degree of guilt as we hear Jesus' words. In hearing what it looks like to live a life appropriate to the kingdom, it's easy to know that we fall short. But Jesus' words aren't aimed at conjuring up hopelessness and despair in us. This sermon is putting before us a, a glorious vision of what the Lord means for our lives to become. It describes a royal lifestyle, a new pattern of behavior and character and posture for the kingdom that we have entered. And as Drew said last week, Jesus isn't going to tell his people to shape up and then leave them to do it. He is with us. And he has gone before us. So these beatitudes or blessings can be translated as happy, as you may have heard. But I think it does Jesus' teaching a, a disservice to land there. See, happiness is a subjective state. And Jesus is making an objective judgment about his people. He's not saying what we might feel like, but rather what God thinks of us. And on that account, we are blessed. Blessing is covenant language. Within God's covenant with his people, those who are faithful to him will experience his blessing and enjoy right relationship with him. So rather than a mere list of things to do and ways to act, the Beatitudes describe the blessings, the the covenant grace and joy that belong to those whose lives show the marks of the kingdom of God. Now, before we get into it, let me just quickly mention that this is not a blessing buffet. Right? This, this isn't describing eight different people, some who are meek, some who are merciful, others that are persecuted. It's not a choose-your-own-adventure situation here. These are eight marks of the same group of people who are all at once meek and merciful, poor in spirit and pure in heart, mourning and hungry, peacemakers, and persecuted. This is the Christian life. So let's look briefly at each one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poverty of spirit, as you may have guessed, is not a financial condition, nor is it being depressed. The Old Testament describes the poor as those who who are helpless, who can't defend or save themselves. They are the needy who who seek God as their only refuge and salvation. They are bankrupt and they trust in the Lord as their only hope and protection and deliverance. So the poor in spirit that Jesus is talking about describes one who knows their, their spiritual bondage and is conscious of the debt of sin. 
And the only thing to do, the only right thing to do is to cry for mercy and depend on the Lord. This is poverty of spirit. It's perfectly framed in the hymn, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. So when God opens our eyes to see that this is our real condition before him, then poverty of spirit is born in us. And we know, we know that the Lord is our only hope. We are poor men and women with no righteousness of our own to plead before God. We are bankrupt and we must beg for mercy. If we are to be rich and to possess a kingdom, we must first lose everything, including ourselves, and become poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So the poverty Jesus speaks of is in our spirit, not our pocket. And similarly, the grief that Jesus describes is in our mourning over our own sin. After the discovery of our poverty of spirit, we learn to grieve because of it. This is another characteristic of the Christian. We don't excuse or belittle or ignore our sin. We cry out with the Apostle Paul, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Then he's comforted by the answer. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is deliverance and comfort. The one who genuinely mourns because of their sin has been drawn out of themselves to see God in his holiness and grace. The sight of God is precisely what causes us to mourn. But it's also the same sight of God that will bring comfort. Because the God who we sin against is the same God who forgives sinners. It is grace that makes us mourn our sinfulness. And that grace is comfort. We experience this every Sunday in our liturgy. We have a sense of guilt. We know our our shame and our separation from God as we drop to our knees in confession. But as Psalm 3 tells us, Jesus Christ is the one who lifts up the heads of his people. So we stand forgiven by Jesus, the resurrection and the life. We can rejoice and be comforted. Poverty of spirit and mourning over our sin will have a a permeating effect on our lives. And the immediate effect is to make us meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This word meek is uh, sort of notoriously difficult to define. It's not weak. It's it's not cowardice. it's It's a humble strength that is displayed in someone who has who has learned to submit. To, to difficult things and to difficult people, knowing that God is working everything for his good. The meek person is the one who forfeits all their supposed rights before God and has learned to submit themselves to the Lord. The best Old Testament example we have of this characteristic is in Moses. 
In fact, besides Moses, Jesus is the only other person in the whole Bible to be described as meek. But for Moses, it wasn't his natural disposition. God had to work this in him over years and years with great patience. It took 40 years of tending sheep instead of shepherding Israel before Moses was ready for the call he received in the burning bush. 40 years gave him plenty of time to reflect on his sin, to mourn over it, and to learn patience and submission to the will of God. This is life in God's kingdom. He wants us to be meek. So he will break our pride and and ruin our sense of self-sufficiency to humble us under his mighty hand to use us for his glory. He patiently changes us. And because the meek are in humble submission to God's sanctification and will, they know what it is to live and reign with Christ. And they can rest in and enjoy, even possess the earth which belongs to Christ. And one day when all things are made new, there will be a new heaven and a new earth for them to inherit. May we be counted among their number. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So the first three Beatitudes offer a way of understanding ourselves, discovering what we really are in God's presence. But you'll notice a progression as we move on because we can't stay here. We're driven into ourselves and now we must be driven out of ourselves. Once we realize that we can't save ourselves, We learn to look to Christ to meet our needs and the needs of the world in which we live. And this is really a mark of spiritual maturity. When we move from a heart absorbed with itself to a a heart that reaches out for God and then toward others, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Now, righteousness is a recurring theme in Jesus' sermon, so it's important to quickly define it. Or one of the most helpful definitions of righteousness I have found is the condition in which things are what they ought to be. In the Old Testament, we see righteousness associated with God's covenant. God always does what he ought to. Yes? He fulfills his promise. And God's fulfilled promise in his covenant is how things ought to be. So to hunger and thirst for righteousness means, first of all, to long for a right, for a right relationship with God and to live righteous before him. But it also means a desire to live rightly before God in the world and to desire right relationships to be restored in the lives of others. And in a fallen world, hunger and thirst will be continual in our lives as Christians. And the blessing? We will be satisfied. The Bible reminds us over and over of the promise to the hungry. Psalm 107 says, God satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. But on this side of eternal satisfaction... Our hunger is satisfied only to well up again, but then to be satisfied again. 
The promise of Jesus that whoever drinks of the water that he gives will never thirst is fulfilled when we keep drinking. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. When we show mercy, we will find it. Now, it doesn't mean that we earn mercy, but we receive it as we are repentant of our own sin, which is proved through our mercy toward others, especially because they are sinners too. The best illustration of mercy is in the parable of the Good Samaritan. We don't have time to look at it in detail, but if you remember the story, it is the Samaritan who proved to be a merciful neighbor to the attacked man. See, mercy is getting down on your hands and knees and doing what you can to restore dignity to someone's life who has, who's been broken by sin, either by their own or someone else's. Uh, I, I don't do this well. And honestly, most of us probably aren't the best at it. And I wonder, how can we claim to be Christians and show so little mercy? Why do we selfishly choose convenience over self-sacrifice? Do we not feel the weight of our own need for mercy? Is our understanding of the richness of God's kindness toward us too shallow? If we know that we have received mercy, then we will show mercy. And the merciful are blessed because they will receive mercy from God himself. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The purity, Jesus speaks of, is a matter of the commitment of the heart and will to Almighty God. Psalm 24 says that those who can stand in God's holy presence have clean hands and a pure heart. They have not lifted their souls to an idol. The pure heart is uncompromising and undivided. Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard expressed Jesus' meaning by saying, purity of heart is to will one thing. Purity of heart is to will one thing. We are to be uncompromisingly dedicated to Christ. This is the way to truly see God. Being pure in heart means that we let nothing stand in the way of our, of our vision of Christ. Because if we hold this world and what it has for us too near, we can't see Christ and his glory. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. God is described in the Bible as the God of peace. And he has made peace for us through Christ, reconciling us to himself. The peacemaking is, is part of God's gracious character. So it naturally follows then that, that being members of his family, we share in his family likeness. His sons and daughters will be peacemakers. One specific element to this is that we seek peace amongst ourselves in the church, in the fellowship of the family of God. We must lay down our will, our position, our desires 
for the harmony and unity of the fellowship and family of God. This takes a meek and merciful and pure heart. Jesus prayed that his people would live in unity as he and his father did. And in Ephesians, Paul says to make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Peace is the bond that ties us together. Sons and daughters, children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There's so much going on in this one beatitude alone, and we can't cover it all, but notice that we've come full circle and ended up where we started. The promise of inheriting the kingdom of God. Probably not how the early followers of Jesus expected. And if we're honest, probably not how we want to receive our inheritance. But since all the Beatitudes describe what every Christian disciple is intended to look like, then we can know that being despised and rejected and persecuted is as much a normal mark of Christian discipleship as being pure in heart or merciful. We should not be surprised if, if anti-Christian hostility increases. In fact, we should be surprised if it doesn't. And although it doesn't seem to be an imminent threat to us here in America, at least not yet, we would do well to grasp the reality of what Jesus is speaking about here. It will save us from discouragement and disillusionment. We follow a crucified Savior. And as we're reminded by the Apostle Peter, we shouldn't be surprised if we find ourselves in fiery trials. But we should learn to rejoice that we have been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And we will be blessed. I know that was a lot. But to bring things to a close, I want us to understand that this isn't some ideal life that we're waiting to live one day. Jesus' teachings mean his disciples, including you and me, have already, here and now, entered into his kingdom. Yes, it's, it's still to be consummated. Yes, it's still to be revealed in its full and final glory. We still wait for the day when the voices of Revelation 11 will cry out, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. We wait for that. But it's still real now even though there are future implications of what Jesus is teaching here, it's not about there and then. It's about here and now. We're not asked to consider living a Christ-like life in heaven. Jesus is calling us to lead that life here and now. These aren't teachings about an ideal life in an ideal world, but about kingdom life in a fallen world. 
May our lives reflect our status as sons and daughters of the King. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and the beautiful and challenging and true way that Jesus shows us what it looks like to be in your kingdom. Thank you for your grace in giving us Jesus to go before us and to walk with us. Help us to submit our lives, to be sanctified into your holy likeness and represent you to the world by living a life in and for your kingdom. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.